Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You know, the book of Romans is probably the most uh, acutely theological book in all of the New Testament. Um, it is the, uh, the, the hallmark of the Apostle Paul's writing. And when he wrote it, he is giving us deep, rich theology through the first six chapters. And the second six chapters of Romans tells us how to apply all that theology to our life. And so Romans 5 is kind of wrapping up most of Paul's intentionally theological statements. And when we read these, we're not to be baffled by theology. We're never to be intimidated by theology. Theology is simply the teaching that helps express to us the heart, nature, works, and will of God. It's the revelation of who God is as he gives us self-revelation. So it's important that we read the scriptures so that we can know accurately who God is. You know, friends, listen, um, truth is not what people say the Bible says. Truth is what the Bible says. And a lot of us have been uh, in a hazardous position in our Christian lives because we haven't been studying the scriptures for ourselves. We've been trained to let the professionals teach us the scripture. So we're constantly learning by others' podcasts, others' preaching, others' resources, others' books. But if, if you stop and think about this, you are very vulnerable in that area because what if some of them got it wrong and what if you imbibed some of that? And so the danger in just being a listener to other people is that you never have the opportunity to really get things solidified in your own heart about what God says. And so in my 20 plus years of working in local church ministry, one of the things that I've been astounded by is, is coming to people with massive hangups and problems in life. And the reality is, is most of it, in, in most of the cases I've found, is because they are still, years after being saved, still ignorant about what God has spoken over their lives. And so they listen to the devil, who's the accuser of the brethren. They listen to their flesh, which may or may not give them any kind of accurate uh, a view of themselves and others in the world, or they listen to what somebody else says. There's been a lot of things spoken over your lives. 
You, you've had it since you were a child. People speak things over you. They speak things into you. And depending on who those people are and where they were positioned in the kingdom or outside of the kingdom, you may have an inaccurate view about who you are in the kingdom. And so what are we going to do? We're just going to go straight into Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to give you some right now realities. If you're born again, if you have bowed your heart to the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ our Lord, believing that his death on the cross was sufficient payment for the most treacherous sins you ever made or for your pride and your self-righteousness, but you have bowed before the Lord and you have said, I believe, Lord Jesus, that you have died for me and I confess that you are the Lord of my life and I submit myself to your lordship and I receive you as my savior, as my king. If you have made that moment in your life real, you're calling an election sure, if you have done that, then everything I'm about to say applies to you, whether you feel it today or not. So let God be true, and let all men be liars. So let's get into Romans chapter number five, verse number one. First thing I want to tell you, we possess oneness with God. As Christians, we possess right here, right now, oneness with God. Why is that possible? How is that possible? First of all, in verse number one, we are told right here that our guilt is gone. Our guilt is gone. Paul says, since we have been justified by faith. Now, justification is a theological term. It's an important one. And it is the judicial decree of God the judge. And he says, I will hold none of your sin against you. Now, if you want to for a moment, think about the worst things you've ever done in your history or maybe the worst thing you did yesterday. Think about the, the for a lot of us that were saved later in life, man, I've got a, I've got a history, at least as far as much as I can remember it. And, and I think about the things that I did prior to my conversion, the things I said, the people I hurt, the, the activities I engaged in, and the, the, all of it put together, the debauchery, the immorality, the defiance and rebellion against authority, including God's authority. And, and when I came to Jesus, that was all I had to offer him. All I had to offer him was the sin that made my salvation necessary. And so coming before him, the tendency of religion and the tendency of human flesh is to think, okay, I'm going to acknowledge I did bad things, I was a bad person, and if you'll give me time, I'll pay it back. I'll work it off. I'll prove to you that I am not who I used to be. Just give me a little bit of time and I won't behave the same way I used to behave. And the problem is, is that as much as we intend to live lives that are honoring of the Lord, we underestimate his holiness. You see, my friends, it's not about doing better. If you could, from the moment of you recognizing Jesus as Lord, if you could live from that point further on with absolutely no sin, zero sin from that moment until the day of your death, you would still have a problem. What is the problem? All the sin you did before that moment. And you can't work that off. So what we need is we need grace and we need God to move on our behalf. He is the ultimate and the final judge before whom we will all stand. And it is that same judge who the moment we said yes in faith to his glorious son, the crucified lamb of God, the risen king of glory, when we said yes to him, God says you have been justified and it is a verdict that is unalterable. The Lord has said you are now clean in my sight. You are now accepted in my sight. I see my son when I look at you. Your record was placed on him on the cross, and he bore all of the guilt, bore all of the shame, and bore all of the wrath for your sin. I took his perfect standing, and I put it on your account, and that is the way you will be before me forever and ever and ever. 
That's the best news that anybody could ever hear, and some of y'all are shrugging this morning. I'm going to tell you, friends, we are free from our guilt. There's only a certain kind of voice that will speak to you about your guilt. Uh, The accuser does that. He wants to wrap you up and help you to define yourself by your worst life implosion. So he'll tell you, you, you're, you're, you stand before God in some level of distance, some level of God being reluctant to be with you, some level of God pushing you back just a little bit. Though he may have his eye on you, his arms are not around you. That's what the accuser says. And then, of course, we always have those pleasant people in our lives that love to remind us of all those things that, that we have failed and done wrong, and yet God will never remind us of our past sins. When we confess and forsake, they are gone, they are cleansed. And then sometimes... It's us. Sometimes we preach to ourselves a false sermon of constant guilt, not measuring up, not being quite whatever enough. And we live under this perpetual shame. And I want to tell you something today. The right now reality of every single Christian in this place is that God, the supreme authority, perfect wisdom, perfect love, he is both holy and just, and he is the one That when you came to his son by faith, God says you are now and forever justified in my sight and you have to live with that. If you do not have that anchor thrown down, then you'll be like a double-minded person tossed by the winds and the waves of life. Your peace will depend upon your performance. And God never wanted that. Why? Because of the great price that Jesus gave in order to take our guilt off of us and away from us but here's an effect in the end of verse number one still in the first verse god help me the war is over that particular war is over since we've been justified by faith we have right now reality we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ this is a relational statement Many people don't like this, and it's very uncommon in our world, or excuse me, very common in our world, to just give this universal decree that everybody's a child of God. Let let me qualify this. Everybody's a creation of God, but child of God indicates relationship with God. And I got to tell us this, this, it's the bad news that makes the good news good. The reality is, is that we're not born children of God. Uh, Matter of fact, the Bible speaks of people outside of Christ as being children of darkness, children of wrath jesus looked at the most conservative religious people sincere to the core about their beliefs uh, fastidious in their morality and bible believers bible students he looked at them and he said you're of your father the devil jesus said that to the scribes and the pharisees and so what we find out is there is apart from a bowing to jesus christ there is the reality that we are at war with god that the position of our souls prior to our conversion is that we are at enmity, as the old King James says. We are enemies of the Lord. We are children of darkness. We are children of wrath. We are the sons and daughters of disobedience. Now, maybe you got saved when you were six or seven years old. You said, Jeff, I was never that. I I have to protest. You were exactly that. The, The difference is, is God clipped you before you began to blossom into who you really were. He he pulled up the seed before it ever had a chance to sprout and bud in deeds of unrighteousness. And when we come to Jesus Christ, there's a cease, the ceasing of the war. You know, so the peace treaty that you have with God, um, he, he doesn't count you as an enemy. That doesn't mean he loves everything that we do because we know that we still commit sin. 
we still fail. We still act arrogantly. We still operate in pride. We still serve ourselves and preserve ourselves. And we are prone to behave in ways that are in opposition to the one who saved us. But that doesn't mean the war kicked back in. You see, the war is between God and the devil. And ultimately, at the end of the age, the entire created order will be separated into that which belongs to God and that which has sided with the devil. There will be glory for those who ended the war by faith and believing in Jesus Christ. And there will be condemnation for those who never came to Christ. When we, we think about this, I, I, I like to picture, sometimes I'll just let my imagination kick in, and I picture Jesus writing a, a peace treaty. And I see him writing it with his finger, and I see him writing it with, with the ink of his blood. And every single statement wherein he declares the positional truth that we are accepted and beloved, and we are complete, and we are guarded, and we are kept, and we are eternally his. When, when I look at that, I think every single thing is written with blood because that's what it cost in order to provide that for you and for me. And then at the bottom, I just see myself signing it, not with the ink of his blood. He's written it in his blood. I have to sign it with the ink of my faith. I have to put my name on what he has declared. I can't add to what he has written. I can't add to what he has provided. I dare not take away from what he has provided. I simply come to the place where I recognize, as we'll see in a minute, as a helpless, formerly ungodly sinner that I have nothing to offer except trust that who he is, who he says he is, he really is. And what he did accomplished it for me. Yes, even me. And when we do that, the Bible says... You and God Almighty have a status of reconciliation, of peace between one another. You know, not everybody every day, every moment experiences the peace of God. But the clear, and this is a fundamental truth, the clear teaching of Scripture is that even when we don't have the reassurance, the feeling of peace, uh, God doesn't let the reality of it depend on how we feel. God has decreed it. God has provided for it. We entered into it by faith. And I am of, I'm, I'm convinced, I'm of the persuasion that the more we walk in obedience and holiness and intimacy, the more that assurance grows and that sense of peace comes. When we are distant from the Lord, we may be tempted to think that maybe that war is not over. Maybe God is still positioning himself in opposition to me, or maybe I'm positioning myself in opposition to him. Reality is, is that when we are his children, he declares that the war is completely over. And there are times where you have to, especially if any of you are in a season where you haven't felt stellar in your commitments to the Lord. Maybe some of you are battling sin, a repetitive stronghold in your life, something that either comes out of your mouth or goes into your eyes or something you do say or think and you just can't seem to get victory and you're constantly reading the 51st Psalm and declaring it over your life because you realize the sin thing is, has become a problem. Well, I want to tell you something. M not making light of sin at all, there is the power to overcome anything. There's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape so that you can bear it. There is no temptation that has any authority over you. But when we succumb, I want to tell you, there are times where you have to say to yourself, I have failed, but my God is not at war with me. He is not a distant deity looking to pick a fight. He is my Father whose heart is broken when I fail him. And when we can enter into that relationally and not give ourselves over to the possibility that the war has resumed. The future is certain, verse number two. Y'all still with me? Yes. Talking about possessing oneness with God. Your guilt is gone. That war is over and the future is certain. 
Verse 2 says, through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I'm beginning to wonder why I thought I could get through 11 verses in our time together this morning. All of these are, are sermons in and of themselves. But look at what the word says. Can you leave that up for just a moment? Through Jesus, we have obtained, we have it. Right now, reality. The war is over, right now reality. Our guilt is gone, right now reality. And your future in Christ is certain. Why? Because we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let me break this down just quickly as I can. So we have access. If you'll think with me, your entire Old Testament could be labeled, if you're not, if, if you'll just give me some latitude here, the entire Old Testament relationship between God and man seems to say, don't come any closer. It seems to say that. Sinful man had no ability just to enter into God's presence at will, even in the tabernacle and the temple, that place where God's presence situated itself. Even there, there were thick veils and barriers. There was an outer court. There was an inner court. And but only in the Holy of Holies could one man in Israel once a year enter into the presence of God. No access. It was constant shedding of animal blood, constant sacrifices, constant uh, desire to meticulously keep all of the fine points of the law. And what the Old Testament tells me is this. No matter how hard any person tries... They are never able to come to the Lord on their own. They can never work it. They can never earn it. They can never sacrifice enough. They can never release enough. There is always the veil between God and man in the Old Testament. Even that high priest, uh, extra biblical literature teaches us that when the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement, they would tie a rope around one of his ankles so that if he, if he displeased God in any way and was struck dead in there in the Holy of Holies, he would wear bells and they would have a rope on his ankle. If they heard the bells jingling, it means that the high priest has fallen, God has stricken him, and they couldn't go in to get him, so they would have to pull him out. Now, we have no record that that ever happened, but it speaks to the, the barrier that everybody understood under the Old Covenant. So when I read that, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It does make me rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, my friends, there is one mediator now between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. And if you have him, the barrier, the veil that kept you from him, kept you from the Father, is torn the veil of sin, the veil of guilt, the veil of God's holiness versus our unworthiness. It's been taken down, and God says, in effect, and if you'll even think when Jesus was crucified, what was the physical manifestation in the temple? The veil was rent from the top to the bottom that separated the, from the holy of holies. It was rent from top to bottom, the gospel writer says, as if to declare to everybody, God from the top down has removed that barrier that has kept us from him, and now the veil of Jesus' flesh has been and broken open the blood that came forth was sufficient to pay for all of our guilt all of our condemnation that's why we have peace that's why we're justified by faith and we have access to it don't miss it by faith you have to believe it and you have to continue to believe it you must press in 
You must always recognize when you're tempted to earn it, when you're tempted to balance your own scales because you had a bad month, and so next week better be a super special month so you can just keep that access going. No, my friends, we, miss, we so underestimate the holiness of God. If we, if we think God's holiness is only at a level to where we can do a few spiritual tricks and get back into his good graces, then we have underestimated the holiness of Jehovah. We've got to recognize that it's all Jesus. And the only thing required of us is a confidence that it is all Jesus. And when we believe we have access, I don't know if you did, but I, I met with him one-on-one this morning. I didn't need to ring up the local high priest. I, I, I didn't need somebody to usher me in. I didn't have to wait in a corridor. I, I, I didn't have to pause. All I had to do was just, just take moments and say, Father, Jesus has made the way, and through the blood of Jesus, I come into your presence. And I talk to him, and he talked to me, and I just sit there and I think, oh my goodness, what, what, what an underestimation not only of his holiness, but the, the immense value of the treasure that we have. You see, Sundays are great. I love Sundays. I, I'll give this little prophetic word at the end of this year that'll spill into next year. Sundays, by the end of next year, will not look like they do at the beginning. God is doing something so significant and special. He's doing something unique here at the Mission Basin, here at New Bridge Church. And, and I'm telling you, friends, the only thing, there's going to be moments where the only thing he's going to let us hang on to is we know that Christ is Lord. As he comes in and he tears away the old wineskins. As he comes down and, and removes all of the old covenant thinking in us. And he comes and imparts to us the vision for the end of the age. It's going to transform things. But no matter how we might perform on any given week, I'm going to tell you something. On your best day, you have access only because you believed in what Jesus has done. Amen. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, the Bible says we're being transformed and we're being changed from image to image and glory to glory. And ultimately, the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. There'll be no shrugging, no doubting, no wondering, no scratching of the head. All the debate will stop. The glory of the Lord will fill the earth. And you and I have access to that glorious one right now. Not because we're super special. Not because we're 100% obedient. Please don't think I'm making light of sin or disobedience. I'm not, I just don't have time to go back and forth with that today. I'm giving you right now realities. So go into verses 3 and 4 with me. We possess oneness with God. That's a right now reality. Let me just make it stronger. You possess, Christian, oneness with God. And we experience growing strength. This is where... Uh, there's plenty of room for all of us to mature and grow and die to ourselves. Because I'm going to talk to you about some hard truths that most of humanity wrestles with. And for some, it's such a stumbling block that they refuse to trust God. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the arena of these right now realities, the goodness of God, the grace of God, the grace wherein we stand. Though we're walking in faith, we're standing in grace every step of the way. But, but what do we do about the suffering? What do we do about the pain? What do we do about the mistreatment? What do we do about the loss? What do we do about the injustice? How does that, how does that jive with, with all of this goodness of God and all of this love and all of this, this care and this, this grace and this mercy? And you know, honest Christians raise their hands and say, I, I believe all that, 
but I don't know what to do with it when my life implodes on me. I don't, want, I don't know what to do with all that I believe about the goodness and the grace and the glory of God. And then something out of left field happens to me that is a life changer that I didn't ask for, I didn't see it coming, and I don't like it. How do we process these things? So let's take a little bit of a big boy, big girl moment, and let's look in verses 3 and 4 and talk about experiencing growing strength. God has offered us an unconventional approach to our pain. Verse 3. Not only that, not only everything in verses 1 and 2, not only do we rejoice in the glory of the Lord, but look at what Paul had the audacity to say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, but we rejoice in our sufferings um i don't want you to raise your hand but how many of you inwardly said no we don't <laughs> i don't have time to break down the greek word when we think of rejoice we think of kind of a light-hearted happiness and a you know a celebration party hats and those little horns and you know raising a toast or what have you um that's really not exactly what paul's describing here Paul is talking about the ability to be so confident that you can boast in God and celebrate his goodness in the midst of the sufferings. But hold on a second. When you are trained in doing that, when you are experiencing growth in doing that season after season after season, you do actually have the opportunity that when a different round or a renewed round of suffering comes to you, where before your immediate default reaction was to run, hide, fight, resist, refuse, get discouraged, get defeated, doubt, and all of those things that are so natural to us, whereas that used to be your default reaction, the more you mature in suffering, the more you stay centered in who God is, the more you trust in his word and who he says that he is, when suffering hits you the next time, there is actually the possibility that you can look at it and not necessarily love the objective arena of your suffering, but you can rejoice because you know what God's going to do through that suffering in your life. There's literally a point that the Christian can get to. Um, in case you're wondering, I'm not there. I'm not there. I'm not going to lie to you. Paul, Paul got there. Paul, Paul literally said, he said, I boast, I rejoice in my weaknesses. He said that the Lord had allowed a messenger of Satan to buffet him, the thorn in the flesh. And he asked God, he asked the Lord, remove it, remove it, remove it. Three distinct times, Paul spent time praying over this thing, this affliction in his life. And Jesus said to Paul, my grace is enough for you. And then Paul said, after the fact, he says, therefore, I will boast. I believe it's the same Greek word. I will boast in my weaknesses, my infirmities. So Paul got there, and I don't think Paul had anything more than we do. He may have greater revelation, but he had the same Holy Spirit. He had the same God. He had less of a Bible than we do because he was busy writing most of it, but we, we have all of it. And the Bible says that we can rejoice in our sufferings. Um, again, don't raise your hand, but how many of you can mark painful losses in the last calendar year? Things that you didn't see coming. I believe most particularly Paul's talking about um, suffering because of our Christianity here when he's writing to Rome. Rome, at the time of this writing, was a very difficult place to be a believer. 
um, when Caesars are wrapping people up like torches in the garden and lighting them on fire to illuminate their backyard parties. That's a bad time to be a Christian. Um, they were being fed to the lions. They were being crucified for, for refusing to say that Caesar is Lord and, and saying instead that Christ is Lord, Christos Kurios. And Paul said, we rejoice in this. So when I read that, I have to tell you something. Um, I know that's a right now reality, that that's available to me. That's available to you. And so there's something to press into. Anybody, help me, Lord, anybody, any Christian can praise God, serve God, and sacrifice for God when it has immediate benefits and obvious results. Anybody can do that. I have a 13-year-old. He can do that all day long. The only time that we find out, is our faith real, is when suffering hits. And I dare say that most in the Western church don't know the answer to that yet. Because we in the Western church do everything within our power to insulate ourselves from suffering, definitely, but we don't even like inconvenience. Paul says we can rejoice in our sufferings. Well, tell us how, Paul. Well, he does. Go into verse 3 and 4. There, there has to be something in you to recognize this is the way God works, and we need an uncompromised commitment to his process. Yes, God likes process. I know that makes some of you free thinkers and free spirits really kind of cringe. Process, it's of the devil. Eh, we don't like that. No, God actually likes process. And here's one that we have to embrace, or we're going to be stumbling over this the rest of our Christian walk. What does he say? He says, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, let's just stop right there. This is something where automatically we, we need to capture this, and we need to start applying it to our lives. So if trouble, struggle, are at its peak, if suffering is hitting you, this is what God is doing. I'm not telling you that God is an abusive, unpredictable father who loves to torment his kids so he can get something good out of them. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is scripture is very clear that all of us born under the sun, all of us born of woman, all of us living on planet earth, our days are full of trouble. The Psalms will tell you that. The entire book of Job wrestles through the subject of suffering and loss in light of being a faithful and righteous person. And the Bible, in spite of what the new modernized view, there's so much garbage going around that tells you that there is no evil, there is no bad, and if you're walking with God as closely as possible, you are immune from these things. That is a lie straight out of the pit of hell. Paul actually said, I want to partner with Jesus in his sufferings. The fellowship, the partnering of Jesus in his sufferings. So Paul recognized that it's a part of life that you cannot avoid, but here's the thing, it's not, it's not arbitrary. It's not pointless. What is God going to do? God is going to use the, all of the nasty in the world that does come against us. Could he keep us immune from that? He could keep us immune from that. He could prevent every difficulty if he wanted to, but it's inconsistent with the way God works. God is taking us into a process. He's purifying us. He's strengthening our faith, and he's building character in us. Watch this. It produces endurance. Your trials are meant by God to make you stronger in the spirit. They're not to destroy you. 
They are ordained of God to develop you, to mature you, to take you from faith to faith, image to image, glory to glory. There is no static reality in the Christian life. It, it, it is kinetic. We are moving. We are growing. We are changing. There is no, I got saved and now boom, like a, a pillar sunk in 50 feet of concrete forever that's never moved. No, it's a journey. We are walking by faith. We are standing in grace. And when the suffering hits you, you, you can't, if, you if you will press in, you will eventually hear the Lord. And he's saying to you, I'm making you into the strength of my son. Jesus was not even spared suffering. God did not spare his only son from the realities of an evil world and an evil system and an evil enemy. Even Jesus submitted himself in the will of the Father to the realities of wickedness on earth. But he always did those things. You see him in the garden saying, Lord, Father, let this cup pass from me. But that, if that's not your will, then Lord, I will drink the cup. And he did drink it. He took the fullness of the wrath of God, the fullness of the wrath of man. And three days after he took all of it and drank all of it, planet Earth saw the most glorious display of power that has ever been seen when Jesus conquered the greatest enemy, death. And he rendered hell, in a sense, uh, unnecessary for all who will believe in him. And he gave us victory over sin. I, I, I'm just going to encourage you I don't feel liberty to tell you just keep praying and the pain and the loss and the suffering will go away. I will say just keep praying. But it's endurance and strength that he's giving you. You're actually stronger as you go through a valley trusting in him. You're actually stronger and the endurance produces something. It doesn't just stop at endurance. It produces character. And I will say to you without splitting hairs here, it's not simply your character that's being produced or refined or purified in you. He's actually reproducing the character of his son in you. You are becoming like Jesus as you endure. Do you know why that, that a lot of Christians never grow? It's because at the first sign of struggle, at the first disappointment, at the first heartbreak, at the first loss, maybe not the first, maybe it's the fifth or the tenth, but there comes a point where they say, this is not right, this is not fair, I can't do this anymore, I can't trust God, I can't keep pressing in, I just can't do it anymore. And they refuse to endure, and they lose the possibility of ever developing the character of Jesus in their lives. See, Jesus, God the Father, wants Jesus reflected in this world. The ultimate end of the story is that the glory of the lamb, lamb fills the cosmos. It's the, the whole story is about his glory. The whole thing is about that, that the name of Jesus Christ would be honored, adored, and, and loved. And ultimately, God's not waiting to the end of the age to do that. He wants to reflect it now. And the way that he shows the glory and the love and the nature of his son is when his son's character is developed in us. And we can't be like Jesus apart from trouble. Listen, I appreciate the fact that he walked on water, but he died on wood. And so we don't win every single battle, but in enduring and becoming like him, we win something that is never forfeited. We have to be uh, excuse me, confident and committed to the process. He's not done with you yet. 
This is not a prophetic statement I'm about to make. This is common kingdom sense. You're going to have some really bad days in 2019. (gasps) You are. And he's not going to announce ahead of time. Next Thursday is going to be terrible for you. He's just not going to do it. You know why? Because you would hide in your room. And listen, if he decreed it was going to be terrible for you, it'll be terrible in that room for you. But he's not arbitrary. He's not flipping. He's not toying with us. He's not like the the predator, the the cougar or the lion, not the cougar, but the lion or the, the tiger on the African plain that before it eats its prey, it plays with it. It's not God. He's answering all those prayers you wanted, you, you asked on the easy days about being more like Jesus. Lord, use me, use me. And don't quit praying that. Don't stop praying it. Endure what comes your way and then learn to rejoice in what you're enduring. Why? Because you'll know every time he's making me like his son and that's what I want most of all. And when you come to that place, that endurance and that uh, character produces hope. And the hope is a confidence. What is the confidence? The confidence is not I'm entitled to an easy life and it's just around the corner. That's, that's not gospel. That's not kingdom. The confidence is I am not alone and God is being glorified not only through me, but to me. There is no greater satisfaction than to experience the presence of God in which he reveals just a, a snippet of his glory. You know, I, I've done this too, so I'm not splitting hairs. I, we get caught up in moments of worship. We're like, show us your glory, Lord. Come, Shekinah, glory, descend. I'm like, you know we'll all die, right? You know we die. So, I mean, that's fine if you want to go out that way. It's not a bad way to go. But if God's full glory was shown to you, you would melt into a puddle of goo because we can't handle it. We have, it requires glorified bodies. But the, the reality is, is the express desire, the Abba Father cry of the Holy Spirit from us is that very thing. Lord, show us your glory. And we do get taste of it from time to time. So you have to answer the question. Is the right now reality that you're going to have some problems and suffering, is it worth it to endure that you may experience the glory? Paul said, I'm persuaded that this momentary light affliction is working a further weight of glory. So do you prize the glory at the end of the trouble more than you, try, uh, more than you prize the potential avoidance of the trouble? So i got to finish here. Let me go a little bit further. Verse number five. As we're experiencing growing in strength, there's got to be an unconventional approach to our pain, which is rejoicing in the midst of suffering. There's, there's got to be an uncom- uncompromised commitment to God's process. You have to stay in it. You have to endure. And then there's an unparalleled revelation of God's presence, and that's verse number five. This hope that is produced from Christ's character being formed in you, which is produced by your enduring, which is produced by your, your embracing of the sufferings, it, this hope does not put us to shame in the end because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What does that mean? Friends, it is only through life's nasty, life's painful, life's undesired um, you know, seasons and rhythms. It's only through those things that we get to know the most precious places in the heart of the Father. It, I promise you, you have grown more in your losses than you have in your gains. I promise you. 
You have experienced, if you're responding properly, you have experienced the presence of God more as you've been stripped of things in life than when you have received things. So we have to be careful here. I'm not a guy who goes out chasing trouble. Uh, you know, Jesus taught us to pray, lead me not into temptation. I found that it, he doesn't have to. It, it finds me. Temptation just, it's just in trials and troubles and struggles and temptation. It just finds us. But it is when we commit to the process that the back end of it is we come out with this confession, not on our lips, but engraved on our hearts. God is gloriously good. God is the only one whom I cannot live without. God is precious to me. God is near to me. God is not a distant deity, but he is an intimate father like no father on earth. And I have only discovered that through the pain. And because we hope in that, Hope and faith are different. Faith is trust that looks backwards. It says, I trust in what he has said. I trust in what he has done. I stake my soul upon it. My faith is that he is who he says he is. He has accomplished what he says he has accomplished. He will fulfill the promises that he has made. I have trust that looks backwards, and that's faith. Hope is trust that looks forward. Hope says, because of who he has been in the past, I have confidence that he will not change. And I have confidence that the, at the end of whatever it is that he allows to come into my life, I have confidence, I have hope that it is going to bring him glory. It is going to produce character in me. It is going to reacquaint me with joy. It is going to magnify the level of peace that, that the trouble or the distress seem to take away. I will endure, I will press, I will wait, and I will do it, not wringing my hands or biting my nails, but I will do it in confidence that God is who he says he is, no matter what my circumstances are telling me. And some of you need that. You absolutely need that this year. I promise you, what you want more than anything, if we could strip everything off down to the spirit, you would find the pulse of your spirit that has been reconciled to God, the, the renewed life, the, the eternal life component. You would find that the pulse of that is saying, I just want his presence. I just want his presence. I just want his presence. Would you want to go to heaven if Jesus wasn't there? We talk so sentimentally about heaven. Walls and streets and mansions and gates and angels and all our loved ones that are there. But I'm going to promise you something. The only reason that heaven is heaven is because of the king. We don't want to go to heaven if Jesus isn't there because it wouldn't be heaven. It would be a vacation, but it wouldn't be a good one because the one that our soul longs for is not there. And we don't have to wait until we leave this earth to be able to experience that. We want his presence now. Let me give you these last things. I'm going to take five extra minutes and ask for forgiveness from the children's ministry. We rejoice in his full acceptance. Perfect standing before God right now. Since therefore we have now, now, say now with me, now. We have now been justified by his blood. I, I've already preached this but I'm preaching it with the word now because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit and it's sitting in your Bible. And Paul was not talking to perfect Christians. He's talking to people that he's had to correct. He's talking about to people that bicker with each other and fight with each other, as Romans 14 points out. 
They're different types of people, but he says, now you're justified. And that's the exhale from guilt. Guilt does not have any place in our lives. Shame does not have any place in our lives. Why? Because the highest authority in existence says, not guilty. I declare you righteous. I have pardoned you. You are forgiven. So walking around feeling guilty that you're not quite there yet, walking around in shame over some implosion that's happened in your life where you were morally culpable or relationally culpable, walking around with your head down doesn't do a thing for the equation because you're already justified. So instead of pouting, instead of, instead of walking around like some second-class citizen in the kingdom because you messed up, in the name of Jesus, for the glory of him, take fully what he has given you, your justification, and start living for his honor. And walk in confidence and walk in boldness. Give no allowance for shame in your life over things from your past. You have to recognize it is a right now reality. So we have that perfect standing. Therefore, we have no fear of the wrath of God right now. Much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. Real quick here, especially if you're an unbeliever, I'm going to say this as sweetly as I can. The wrath of God is coming to a planet near you. The wrath of God will be poured out. No, I am not kidding. I am not trying to be, um, uh, you know, exaggerated. I'm telling you, the wrath of God Almighty will be fully and finally poured out and every person under the sound of my voice that is delaying their obedient submission to Jesus Christ, you are toying with eternal wrath. For those of us that have said yes to Jesus, all the wrath that would have found us has already been poured out. It was poured out on the Son of God on the cross. He took the full wrath of the Father, therefore there's no wrath left over for you, Christian. There's no wrath left over for me. We have been delivered from the wrath to come right now. Verses 10 and 11. We have relational peace with God right now. It's just a repeat of what Paul said earlier. For if while we were enemies, don't forget that, okay? You weren't a good little boy or a good little girl. I can't stand that kind of piety among Christians because maybe they never got off into sin and they just felt like God had to kind of give them a token salvation because they handled most of it themselves. Uh, every conversion is a violent wrenching away from darkness. Every conversion from God's perspective. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We were enemies and God provided for the reconciliation. Much more now that we are reconciled, how shall we be saved by his life? Not a question, a statement. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation so I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet please how are you going to walk out of the room today are you going to walk out of the room on probation with the almighty are you going to walk out as one who's going to enjoy his or her pardon and going to honor God for it because it cost Jesus his life are you going to walk out allowing doors to be cracked open in your thinking and your emotions that shame can walk through, accuse you, uh, batter you, and tear you up? Are, are, are you going to close that door permanently? I'm a guy with a bad history, and it took me years, years 
to refuse to listen to the whisper of shame in my life. It took me years. It shouldn't have. I needed somebody to get in my face with a Romans 5 and say, hey, listen, you're either going to believe that lying voice or you're going to believe the inspired voice of God pinned down in the Bible. Who are you? You are who he says you are. And he says, you and me, child, we're reconciled. There's no war between us. There's no enmity between us. I'm Papa, Abba. You're my child. You didn't come after me. I came after you. You didn't seek me. I sought you. You didn't wake up one day and decide to be a Christian. I had your name written down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world ever began. And I came to you. And my death reconciled, my son's death reconciled you to me. You and I aren't enemies anymore. And now my son is alive. And child, don't ever forget, he ever lives to make intercession for you. See, Jesus didn't finish with you when he saved you. Jesus is still speaking over your life right now. So for his glory, stop listening to anything that undermines that. Stop listening to shame. Stop listening to fear. Stop listening to doubt. And start boldly pressing in to the positional truths and the right now realities of grace. You are his, and he's made it forever. So Father, in Jesus' name, let us have bold, audacious, courageous faith, and let us live this beginning right now. Silence the accuser, and if he will not be silenced, Lord, then deafen us to his voice. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. We do not listen to liars. We listen to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life for his glory. Amen, amen, and amen.